At 2 a.m. on June 18, 2014, Oklahoma City Police Officer Daniel Holesclaw finished up his shift. On his way home in his police cruiser, he pulled over 57-year-old Jenny Liggins for a traffic violation at a busy intersection, where surveillance footage shows a normal traffic stop. Around three hours later, Ms. Liggins filed a complaint, claiming that an officer forced her into oral sodomy. Her mouth swab came up empty for Daniel's DNA, as did his uniform for hers. But this allegation inexplicably launched an investigation focused on at-risk African-American women that Daniel had made contact with, bringing forth 21 alleged victims, including one man. Daniel became a rallying cry for everyone who doesn't want to see any cop abusing their power or sexually assaulting women. It all seemed to fit a grim and growing narrative, and a media circus ensued. At first, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, I jumped right on board thinking, good, they got him. But upon the persistent urging of his sister Jennifer, and admittedly, through my own reluctant closer look, we now have a case that turns that abusive cop narrative right on its head. In this amazing and alarming episode, we will speak with Daniel's sister, Jennifer Holesclaw, biologist, Erica Fuchs, and we'll also take a phone call from an undisclosed correctional facility from former Oklahoma City Police Officer Daniel Holesclaw, who is currently serving a 263-year prison sentence in a maximum security prison under assumed name for crimes he did not commit. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today's episode is going to mess up your perceptions of everything, just as it did to me. It's a tragic miscarriage of justice, but it's also an insane journey through a very different lens than we've ever covered before. And today we're going to be talking about the case of Daniel Holesclaw, wrongfully convicted a former police officer from Oklahoma City. And... He's on the phone, so Daniel, I'm sorry you're here, but I'm glad you're on the phone. I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, my loved ones and letting me able to have uh, the opportunity to definitely speak my side and express my innocence. Well, we hope to be part of the solution, and with us in the studio, we have two extraordinary women. One is a biologist, Erica Fuchs. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. And with her is one of the most persistent and brave uh, women I've come across. The sister of Daniel, Jennifer, is here. And without you, I can honestly say this wouldn't be happening. Thank you for giving us the time. No, your your courage is inspiring. And Daniel, same for you. Um, so let's talk about this crazy case. And this was a national news story, international, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. And at the time, and I'm really sorry to say this, Daniel, but at the time that I saw it come across my screen, I was like, oh, well, I mean, okay, they got this guy, mm-hmm. you know, like, because the narrative was always the same. And and me, of all people, should not have bought into it, but it was an inexorable barrage mm-hmm. of information that was all one-sided. Um, and Daniel, your sister, your amazing sister, you know, w- wouldn't leave me alone. And at first I was like, can you leave me alone? And she was like, no, I can't. And I was like, but I want you to. And then once I got into it and I started talking to Eric and I started talking to others and I was like, oh my God, he's as innocent as could be. This is terrible. That's why we're here. You were on the force for three years, and this whole thing happened in what year? 2014. 2014, which was a very uh, fraught time, shall we say? A lot of controversy around Ferguson and other um, 
which you know continues to this day. Of course, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that still has to be worked out as it relates to the relationships between various police departments and the people they mm-hmm. serve and protect. It, it was rough, you know, to add to what you said as far as the atmosphere and the environment at that time with the Ferguson deal. I mean, cops nowadays are perceived as racist, corrupt. Um, something's wrong with them. It's not like back in the old days where God, cops were honored, you know, as a prideful job. You know, this 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 guy is a good guy. That's more along the lines of being skeptical, you know. And so, um, again, the Ferguson deal, what happened then, the Baltimore deal was going on there. So it was just literally eye of the storm uh, in that situation. I mean, I grew up, you know, obviously respecting anyone in a uniform, but especially police officers. And, you know, there are some bad apples. So, of course, when that stuff goes gets out on video, the public's going to react because it's it's a betrayal of a very serious level of trust, which is not to say that the overwhelming majority of police officers aren't out there doing the good job, risking their lives and performing a service that we all need. Um, you were ultimately convicted of false charges related to eight different cases. So they got it wrong eight times. And actually more than that, when you think about it, because there were numerous charges on most of those cases anyway, or all of them. So yeah, they got it wrong eight times, whatever number. I mean, it's really, that's scary. Jennifer, you want to jump in? Yeah, yeah. It was definitely shocking to hear these allegations, especially the first one. And the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because when this first happened, I wanted to know everything. I wanted to read all the transcripts. I wanted to watch uh, anything that I can get my hand on to see, could my brother have really have done this? And everything that I've looked into, everything that I've read... And knowing Daniel, and not just because he's my brother, but just because the facts of everything that I put my hands on or or that I could touch, nothing pointed to Daniel's guilt. And that's what really got me. And I say this to this day, if there was anything that proved or showed anything, I would back out and say, Daniel, you deserve every second being in prison for ever doing this to a woman. And I haven't found one single thing that pointed me to say that Daniel did any of the crimes that he has been convicted of. And so that's why I am very passionate about this, and I will fight till the day I die to get my brother out. So this started when Jenny Liggins, she was a woman that Daniel pulled over, right? And Jenny, you've obviously been so deep in this ever since it happened. You want to walk us through this? Because it's really weird, right? Mm-hmm. The video evidence doesn't match. Mm-hmm. The descriptions don't match. Mm-hmm. Like, what happened? Uh, So Daniel got off of work about 2 a.m. That was his normal shift. And it was proven in trial that when Daniel would get off of work, they looked through his system, he would normally just turn off his laptop and head home. It was nothing nefarious that he did that night that he pulled Janie Liggins over. On his way home, not too far from the police department, he saw a car swerving. Tenant windows, limo tent. At 2 a.m., you can't see through those tenant windows. So it's not like Daniel targeted a woman driving. So he pulled over, questioned her. He asked her if he could search her car. He brought her to his police vehicle, and then he searched the car. He did say that he saw hydrocodone bottles, and then he did a whole search. Is there anything underneath your bra? The clasp and shake, and she did that. Looking for drugs. Looking for drugs and any weapons. And everything that Daniel claimed had happened matched up to what Janie Liggins said besides the sexual assault. Janie Liggins claimed that when she was in the back of Daniel's vehicle that Daniel made her perform oral sex. Right where he had pulled her over, there's a security building that there's a grainy video 
on YouTube right now that you can see the traffic stop and you can't see everything. You can just see a police officer pulling her over. He had his lights on. He never turned his lights off. And it was right at a busy intersection on, off of 50th and Lincoln in Oklahoma City. And um, there was actually an off-duty cop that does like a side job that is a security for that security building. So it's not like Daniel pulled this person over on, on a side street. It was a busy intersection. And Daniel let her go. And the following morning is when she made the claims about the sexual assault. It was a little later that morning, actually, I think. Yeah. Three hours. Which is a significant point, right? Because we have with us in the room, as I introduced you before, a respected uh, biologist <laughs> um, who works in this field. Well, looking at this from the biologist, what was important for me to see is that Janie Liggins made claims that were not supported by the forensic evidence. She had a SANE kit done that morning and was interviewed by a female sex crimes detective. And the SANE kit ultimately came back negative. There was no DNA from Daniel found around Janie's mouth and the swabs there. And during the trial, the forensic analyst actually said, unfortunately, there was no DNA from Daniel, which showed her bias. Janie Liggins had said that Daniel had placed his hands on the car and she had placed her hands on the patrol car, but fingerprint analysis and DNA was not found matching either of them on the car. So her descriptions did not match what was found with the forensic evidence. There was no forensic evidence supporting what she said happened. Right. And later it was discovered after the stop that Daniel did when Janie talked with the sex crimes detective, Detective Davis, Janie disclosed that she had been smoking pot earlier that day. And she described the police officer as having blonde hair and being shorter. shorter. It just didn't match right. so, Daniel. I mean, she must have been high as a kite because if Daniel's blonde, then, you know, I'm the prime minister of Egypt. You know what I mean? Like, he has dark hair, obviously, and short, he's 6'2". So none of this stuff makes any sense. How could you get that wrong? You get a lot of things wrong. You can't get blonde to black hair wrong. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the detectives used Daniel's own police records, specifically looking for African-American women he had stopped, who had criminal histories. And the detectives went and questioned over 40 women fitting this profile, and then got allegations from them to add to this initial allegation they had. So then they went fishing. Hello? This is Detective Davis. Okay. I have received a tip. That's Detective being clear on the phone when we talk. He was being quite clear, but like I said, that's the only time that I had that happen to me. He exposed himself to me. That was a black officer. I, guess they I work in sex crimes. And I've been working some cases, and I received a tip that you may have been sexually assaulted by a police officer. Because I've had to go to a lot of women. They didn't come forward. I've had to go find them. And only one race. That's what infuriates me. Why do they only question one race? If they were really wanting to figure out if he's a serial rapist, why didn't the other races matter? You know, why do they only question one? So right. that's very frustrating for me. Yeah, it's disturbing because the lieutenant who was in charge of the investigation, and it says this during the trial, the lieutenant specifically looked back through six months of Daniel's police records and created a list of the African-American women, specifically African-American women, quote, who had a drug history, prostitution history, or a significant criminal history whom Daniel had stopped. So people presumed Daniel was guilty of racism when, in fact, it was the detectives who 
were targeting African-American women, at-risk African-American women, encouraging them to make allegations against Daniel as they were railroading Daniel. Right. And they would they brought these women in, and the videos are as troubling as the audience who's listening now probably thinks they are, right? There's one who's stuck in my head. I've forgotten her name, but who came in and said the seven times she was asked, did anything happen? And seven times she said no. And then eventually... They got her to change her story, right? Yeah. She then said that the only officer who'd been inappropriate was a black police officer several years ago who exposed himself to her. And then the detective kept on questioning, and ultimately this woman then claimed that Daniel had wanted her to lift up her bra. He didn't say anything, but she just did it. And that was the whole allegation. He didn't even tell her. She just thought that she was supposed to. So... That was glossed over by the detectives. I don't think that the detective reported that she actually accused a black police officer. It just jumped instead right ahead to saying that Daniel had done something. Right. And the number were just summarily dismissed because they were so ridiculous that they couldn't even take him to trial. Yeah, there were eight people who made allegations against Daniel, and those allegations were weeded out right away. And so these were eight allegations made that never went to trial. And then in the trial, there were 13 allegations. Five of them led to acquittals, and the eight that ended up causing convictions had numerous problems in them. Like Jenny mentioned, one of the women saying that it was a shorter police officer who was black, a shade darker than her own skin color. And Dion got the most number of yeah, years for her. years for her allegations. So, but, so. Right. So you were mistaken for a short black guy. Yeah. Um, and anyone who hasn't already seen pictures of Daniel, take a look. I mean, there's a linebacker, and he's a 6'2", very bulky guy who's Asian. I mean, this is not confusing, right? This is, this is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. But with the sheer number of allegations seeming so overwhelming, it's kind of understandable how that could have continued to cast doubt on Daniel's innocence. After all, just because one allegation is doubtful does not disprove another, which is why we need to take a look at each allegation individually. I also want to be clear that we're not here to point at the alleged victim's life choices as evidence of credibility or lack thereof. Now, initially, 21 accusers came forward, but eight were eliminated immediately as false allegations against Daniel. For example, one of them alleged that Daniel had used his position as a police officer to sexually assault her after he had been put on administrative leave. Others later admitted to lying, including Shanice Barksdale. So he never touched you? No. I never seen him. Why? I just felt bad for her, and I just wanted to know, like, she wasn't the only victim or anything. You felt bad for who? I only know about the 57-year-old. That's okay. the only one I know about. And you found out about her from what? The Facebook. Okay. Um, Five of the remaining 13 accusations resulted in acquittal. For privacy protection, we will refer to each of these accusers as, quote, acquittal and a corresponding number. Acquittal 1 told investigators about an alleged assault made by an officer in an area that Daniel had never patrolled. When investigators fed her details and a timeline to match Daniel's beat, she denied that story until getting arrested for unrelated drug charges, at which time she decided to agree to change her story to match the different location. Acquittal 2 claimed to have flashed Officer Holesclaw her breasts thinking that was what he wanted, even though he had not requested it. She denied any inappropriate contact. Then, she told investigators about an alleged indecent exposure by a black police officer. Acquittal 3 claimed that Daniel had raped her for 20 to 30 minutes and orally sodomized her through the unzipped fly of his pants. 
This alleged incident would have happened just hours before the Jenny Liggins traffic stop. However, there was no match to her DNA either, as well as no evidence of body fluid on Daniel's fly. She also said that her attacker had ticketed her one year prior. Daniel had never ticketed this woman. Acquittal 4 claimed that Daniel groped her breasts, but described the alleged groper as, quote, part Hispanic and having, quote, slightly gray hair. She also testified in court that lying and giving false social security numbers to the police is appropriate behavior. Lastly, Daniel friended and messaged with Acquittal 5 on Facebook after an incident involving an overdose on PCP in which Acquittal 5 disposed of the substance by eating a glass vial full of it. In fact, Daniel escorted her life-saving ambulance ride to the hospital. In her police interview, she claimed that while she was recovering from that incident, Daniel allegedly forced her into oral sodomy while she was handcuffed to her bed in a busy hospital. This is what she said on her way out of that interview. So this is good evidence? Well, you tell me. I think so, because, I mean, even if he didn't, like, even rape nobody or nothing, he still been in contact with people that he was arrested. So all five of these allegations ended in acquittal. Of the original 21 accusers, eight allegations resulted in convictions, and we are going to now, one by one, examine the facts of each case. Again, for protection of privacy, we will refer to all as conviction and a corresponding number. You're already aware of conviction one, Jenny Liggins, whom we covered earlier. Conviction two alleged that Daniel had orally sodomized her near a public park, then transported her inside the public park by a closed school and proceeded to rape her for five to ten minutes. This is how she described her attacker. Tell me your description of him. He's black. Black male? Muscular. Muscular. So you think he's shorter than you? Yeah. Okay. How tall are you? 5'11". What kind of car did he have? A black and white one. Black and white car? Oklahoma City Police car. Daniel also had made contact with her at some point near that old school in the public park. But when he did, his automatic vehicle locator, or AVL, a GPS device that tracks the movements of police cars, says that his car stopped for less than four minutes, not five to ten. He's also 6'2 and half white, half Japanese. Definitely not shorter than 5'11", and definitely not black. Conviction 3 claimed that Daniel allowed her to drive under the influence while he followed her to her relative's house, at which point she alleged that he drove her to the end of the street and raped her. However, his AVL tells us that he never drove on that street. Further, the duration of the alleged rape changed from, quote, a long time to, quote, five to ten minutes, and then at trial to, quote, maybe about three minutes or so. But when she and Daniel did have an interaction, his AVL still would only allow for a window of less than three minutes for a possible attack. Conviction 4 alleged that when Daniel raped and orally sodomized her in her room in a house, that she wiped phlegm from that oral sodomy on a chair. The swab from the chair, however, revealed the DNA profile of a male that was not Daniel. Conviction 5 claimed that her alleged attacker drove the older model Oklahoma City PD black and white. However, Daniel drove the newer, all-black cruiser. Conviction 6 testified that her attacker was a tan color, like someone from India. Not dark, but not pale. She also claimed that he made her expose herself. However, a witness claimed that she was handcuffed at the start of their encounter. For Conviction 7, there's no DNA evidence to speak of, but she did change her story several times. At first, an officer allegedly fondled her breast over her clothing. Then, at a preliminary hearing, she claimed that the groping was skin-to-skin contact. At trial, it was back to her over-the-clothing allegation. Finally, the crux of the prosecution's case, Conviction 8, a 17-year-old girl who claimed that Daniel pat-searched her, 
inserted a finger in her vagina, and proceeded to rape her through the unzipped fly of his buckled pants on her mother's porch. This is what she had told her mother about their encounter. She said, I met this really hot cop. He told me I had a couple once, but he said, don't worry about it. She was really nice and he was sexy, and I just looked at her like she was crazy. No body fluid was detected or observed on the fly of his pants. However, a microscopic trace amount of her DNA was found on his fly, along with DNA from at least two other individuals, including at least one unknown male, which goes to support the defense's theory that the presence of her DNA on his fly can be explained by secondary transfer. Transfer of DNA to objects or people through an intermediary. The main evidence in the case was DNA found on the fly of Daniel's pants, but the DNA evidence on the fly of the pants included no evidence of body fluid, and ultimately Daniel was accused of raping one woman through the unzipped fly of those buckled pants, and there's no stains, no deposits on them at all. So that would make it very unlikely that there had been any kind of sexual assault to be able to give evidence that's just a low quantity of DNA it matches most closely with indirect transfer of DNA. Is it possible for Daniel to have done these crimes and not left any trace of biological evidence anywhere? I would say very unlikely. This is so troubling because the idea that Daniel or anyone could be convicted of eight different crimes with the absence of any real biological evidence, and it takes you coming from Iowa an outsider, to come in and, and do the work that the forensic people should have and could have very easily done in the first place. The mistakes, there's so many mistakes that we don't have time to cover it on this show. I mean, I have a list of 95 of them, right? And there's no way we could talk for hours that we wouldn't cover all of the mistakes that were made, both deliberate and, and sloppy mistakes, right? Yes. Um, so, but, but back to you. When I looked at the news about the case, which is how I found out about it, it was mentioning how the prosecutors were so proud to have gotten convictions on eight women's allegations based on a little bit of DNA. And the more I looked, I saw there was no evidence of body fluids. And it turns out the forensic analyst just looked at the pants with a bright light and magnifying glass and saw there was no evidence of vaginal fluid or body fluid and then went right to testing just the fly of the pants. She did not do any control tests on other places on Daniel's uniform pants and belts. The main problem, I think, at the Oklahoma City Police Department is the detectives and then the prosecutors above them, they just did not understand that DNA can transfer innocently. And so as soon as they found a mixture of DNA on the fly of Daniel's pants, the police thought that meant he was guilty of sexual conduct and therefore guilty of sexual crimes. They wanted to then go out and find the female who matched the major contributor to that DNA mixture, assuming she was a victim. So they had that mindset, that bias, that developed into tunnel vision on Daniel right from the beginning of the investigation, and then went out and solicited allegations from women whom Daniel had stopped. And it's no surprise that some of the women did remember, yes, they were stopped by Daniel because they had been contacted because the police knew Daniel stopped them. Daniel's case would be like, someone meeting with you in your office, and then later they find a woman's DNA on the fly of her pants, and the woman said, yes, I was at his office, and they conclude that you're guilty just because you had an interaction with someone. So if you shook hands this morning 
with somebody who uh, you met on the street, and then uh, you run into a friend, whatever, and then they went and went to the bathroom afterwards. A little bit of your DNA, a touch DNA, would be on somewhere on the wherever they unzipped or unbuttoned. It would be there. It could right? very well be there, right? right? Because we're always transferring DNA. Yes. We're always shedding. Like we always, it's like we leave it on everything. We leave it on the coffee cup. We leave it everywhere we go. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people, what do you think, this, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. When you were first taken in for questioning, did you request a lawyer? I didn't request a lawyer. At that time, I just wanted to uh, say professional. I wanted to clear my name. I knew uh, in any department in law enforcement, your reputation what you go off of. If you want to go to a promotion, you want to go to any special unit, your reputation is what's on the line and what people hear about you. And so I'm trying to clear my name. I don't know what you got kind of allegations you guys toward me. I'm trying to clear my name. I'm trying to cooperate and uh, get out of there. Right, but we see so many times when we see young kids picked up by police for questioning and they don't even know they're supposed to ask for a lawyer, right? They're in high school or they're from they're from a background where they had no, you know, knowledge of how these things work. You're in law enforcement, right? So it seems to me logical that if you were concerned, the first thing you would have done, you're a college graduate, your whole family's your whole life has been law enforcement. 
you got a degree in criminal justice. I mean, that's where I go, well, wait a minute. If, if there was anything on your mind, the first thing you would have said is, okay, I, I want a lawyer. I'm not talking to you guys now. And actually, you went in the complete opposite direction. From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, you turned over your passwords. You turned over the keys to your apartment. I mean, uh, can you just elaborate on that? And, and why did you do those things? I, I basically corroborated the fullest. Anything they asked, I answered. Um, again, I wanted to be professional. I didn't uh, raise hell. I didn't uh, raise my voice. Um, they asked. I answered. Um, and that's kind of how, in the sense that you were trained in academy, you know, you, you're broken down and then you're raised up. And so you, you, if you're asked a question, you're addressed, you're going to reply. Anything that they ask, yeah, go ahead. Please please do that. Um, go ahead and go with DNA testing. Go ahead and go to my apartment. Whatever you need to do to clear my name. So I could get back and continue my job, what I thought I did really good at, please do. After this had become this insane media circus that, that reached people all over the world, and now you go to trial, and I'm sure it was a crazy scene there. Just give us your perspective on how the trial went, how your defense team handled it, and what your expectations were. Trial was a long period of time, and this has happened during the Thanksgiving break. Try to address to the audience is how big of an impact media affects people's perception and their opinions. So when they use that national media into the aid of the DA's office, I'm already presumed guilty before I step in that courtroom. So when Judge Henderson asked the jury members, "Are everyone in the courtroom? Raise your right hand if you have uh, seen this man or, or ever heard of the name Daniel Oswald." I looked up the whole courtroom, raised their hand. So imagine yourself being there, fighting for your life. And the whole courtroom already knows who you are based off the, the opinions of the media. And again, media has such an effect on the outcome of cases because all it shows is highlights. They don't show the facts. They, they could edit and they could crop whatever they want to fit what they want. And then the majority of the cases is, is, is the wrong narrative. It's false. It's not the right facts. So with that said, it was a huge burden to overcome. So if you're guilty, then you got to prove yourself innocent. And now on top of that, you have a whole jury members that perception in their mind is already, oh, he's already presumed guilty. And then, like I said, going back to the Thanksgiving break, it's a long trial. So you have Judge Henderson's court orders is don't talk to your significant others when you go back home. Well, come on, listen, in reality, that's not going to happen. You know, honey, what did you do today? Well, I was at the whole small trial. The biggest thing going on in Oklahoma. You know, all national news, Oklahoma. Of course you're going to talk about it. So it reinforces the people that are not even in the courtroom, the, the husband, the wife, oh, well, he's guilty, he's guilty of this. It's just playing it into the jury members' minds, and they're hearing that. So it's reinforcing the presumption of guilt. So that's something I want to reinforce the people in the audience to understand, being in my position, how hard it is to fight for that, you know? And so we come back from Thanksgiving break, and then not only that, you have or my lawyers, you know, we, we hired a DNA expert, and yet, you know, they didn't find any of this DNA. We have to wait till Erica comes along to find that. That's, that's not right. You know, I'm fighting for my life. We hired, we spent hard-working money for the DNA expert, and yet you're going to fail me on that. Um, there's a lot of parts where in the trial I felt like, you know, my lawyer could have stepped up and objected or said something. And there was times where I was mad, you know, I... I'm getting I'm getting flustered. I'm trying to keep my composure because the jurors' members are looking at me. 
but you know, I'm getting mad. And I remember one time, I'm just like, Scott, what are you ejecting? Like, what are you doing? And we kind of got into bigger minute. He's like, calm down, I'll calm down. Well, it's hard for me to calm down when you see these quote unquote victims that go on the stands and not even addressing the questions. And in addition to that, you have lead detective Davis and Gregory that are coaching them along, head nodding everything they want to say. Okay, yeah, that's right, continue on. And they're looking at Davis and I'm looking at the jury members. Are you serious? Are you not are you not seeing this? And so it was really frustrating, um, the whole process. Uh obviously I was in total shock when the the verdict came down and um it was just uh, a really sad time, you know. Something I didn't ever thought possible would happen. My friend Josh Dubin conducted a study uh, with a, a help from a lot of other people that showed that jury members have a presumption of guilt that teeters on 80% just because they see somebody in the defendant's box. In your case, it was probably 100% of them assumed you must be guilty of something because it was impossible to find a jury that hadn't heard about the case. You couldn't have found one anywhere in America at that point in time, but least of all in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, so in your case, they, you know, and, and then being the amateur psychologist that I am, you know, when the jury is sitting there and then they're being presented with evidence that they're, you know, they're, they're not dumb people. So they're sitting there going, well, this doesn't make sense. And that wasn't true. And this doesn't add up. And he's not a black guy and he's not short and he's not blonde. And, but on the other hand, I saw this thing on TV and yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. I can jump here too, because what's really important is how the DNA evidence contributed heavily to Daniel's conviction because the prosecutor actually said in his closing argument, quote, the most important thing about the teenager whose DNA profile was found on the fly of Daniel's pants is the fact, said the prosecutor, that DNA from the walls of her vagina was transferred in vaginal fluids onto the outside and the inside, not of his pockets, not of his cuff, not where he sits, but at the exact location she says his penis came in contact. So the prosecutor lied to the jury, telling them there was vaginal fluid. There wasn't. There was not. And we know from a juror's interview after the trial that the jury, at least this one juror, thought there was vaginal fluid because he was interviewed on Crime Watch Daily. And he said, well, I mean, I'm not a DNA expert. They told us the DNA was from the vaginal fluid of a 17-year-old. The DNA people are pretty boring, to be honest with you, end quote. Well, I mean, I'm not a DNA expert. They told us it was DNA from the vaginal fluid from a 17-year-old. The DNA people are pretty boring, to be honest with you. So we know at least one juror was misled by the prosecutor to believe there's vaginal fluid. And so, of course, they're going to end up convicting, not just for the teenagers' allegations, but the jurors explained afterwards that this impacted their deliberations for all these allegations yeah, and this was during closing arguments. Could your lawyer have objected in the closing argument? He still yes. can, yeah, and he yeah, should he, have. Yeah. I mean, in fact, not. it should be a mistrial. Yeah, and he didn't. Yeah. They didn't object to that. Yeah. That's crazy. It, to a gross misstatement. Another problem in the trial is that the forensic analysts misrepresented the DNA evidence. On the fly of Daniel's pants, there was a mixture of DNA from at least three people. There were four different stretches of fabrics, two on the outside and two on the inside of the fly that were swabbed. And it turns out all of them had male DNA. And the reason this is significant is the prosecution ended up arguing that they claimed Daniel's DNA was not there. And so if he had just innocently transferred DNA matching the teenager accuser, you would supposedly expect to find Daniel's DNA there. 
the forensic analyst ended up telling the jury there was no male DNA on the inside of the fly. And the prosecutor again and again would have her say that there's no DNA, so Daniel's DNA is not there. And then argued to the jury that this meant it was very unlikely that you could have DNA transferring innocently. So the jury was misled into believing there was no male DNA. The forensic analyst also was wrong when she concluded Daniel's DNA did not contribute. That was a major error. The DNA evidence did not allow that conclusion. There's such low level of DNA. You can't tell from whom the DNA came. Daniel's DNA could be there, but at low levels, so you don't detect all genetic regions. So anytime you have DNA misrepresented in a trial, it's bad because DNA weighs so heavily in the minds of jurors. Daniel's attorney never even challenged these claims by the state's forensic analysts that there was no male DNA or that Daniel's DNA wasn't there. So this is actually the perfect storm for a wrongful conviction, right? You have the media frenzy reporting inaccuracies left and right, making up a narrative that sells advertising time or newspapers. You have a jury pool that then is hopelessly tainted. You have bumbling, incompetent, and biased investigators throughout this process. You have a defense attorney who is, I don't want to say incompetent, but was not up to the task because this is as serious as a case could be. We're talking about life in prison. I mean, I just did the math. Daniel's sentence, if he were to serve his sentence, he'd be in prison until the year 2277. Then you have a prosecutor who lied, forensic people who lied or were misstated or inaccurate, whatever the word you want to choose, right? With all of that, mm -hmm. the outcome was preordained. Did you have any hope that you would still be vindicated? Well, I always believe in the judicial system. That's why I was a cop. And so, um, you know, I believe justice will be served. I believe that I'll be exonerated. Um, I remember vividly the jury remembered that uh, she was a female that I would look and, you know, acknowledge every time they came in the courtroom or I left the courtroom. She would look at me, she would smile. And um, when the verdict was coming in and they walked in the courtroom, I saw a male, the male jury members teary-eyed. And then I saw her crying hysterically. And, um, and this is when I'm really freaking out. And I'm, I'm shaking, I'm there, I, you know, what's going on? And I looked over to my lawyers and I'm like, well, what, what's going on, you know? And um, she's crying hysterically, everyone's crying, the jury members, and that, that doesn't make sense because if you thought I was a guilty villain, well, why are you crying, you know? And, and, and then when they read the officer the verdict and they said I was guilty, I mean, I was just in total shock. I don't even remember uh, what I did or what happened. I, I just remember, I think I just dropped my head and, you know, it's like, God, why? You know, what was going on? And uh, it, it was, uh, all I know is I dropped my head. And uh, something that I believe the justice system failed me. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. 
Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. We're here because we want to educate the public as to how these things can happen and how it could happen to someone you love and to educate people who are going to be serving on juries at some point in their life that you know whoever's listening it could have been you in that jury box and how would you have done and i'm sure people are saying well i would never have convicted him but but 12 people did and how could they get it so wrong how could they look at 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 things that are so clearly black and white um and go yeah i know it's false but you know and they had a complicated task. They're looking at things that they know are false, right? They're looking at testimony that they know is false from a number of different people. At the same time, they're being presented with quote-unquote evidence by people who they respect, prosecutors and forensic people. And so they're, they're stuck in a conflict. But, but as citizens and as everyone, again, potential jury members, your duty is to, if there's doubt, to acquit. You know, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. That's something we all learn in high school, right? Beyond a reasonable doubt. Not maybe, it could be, I don't know, it's a conflict, I'm not sure. Eh, you know, and then there's that, that that quote that I can never say enough times, it's better that a hundred guilty men should go free than that one innocent should suffer. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of been turned on its head. But Daniel, here you are, you're stuck in a situation that would break, uh, I think, most people. How do you do it day by day? How, how I mean, how are you getting along on the inside? Being a Christian, I think uh, there's a plan for everything. And I, I used to hate hearing that as a cliche and just, I was cornering you when things happen for a reason. And I used to hate that. But I think there's a greater purpose in God, and I think God has a plan for me. And, um, you know, deep down in my heart, I know I'm going to be free. I know justice will be served as much as I believe in that system, and now I have a little bit of hope in there, and I believe it's going to happen. And with that said, I can be here possible without any all my loved ones and supporters. So everyone that has come along the way, I, it's a blessing. It's a, just an act of God right there. And um, I'm fighting, never gave up, never had a thought of giving up. So I know I'm going to be free. I'm not going to let this, you know, change who I am. And that day when I'm free better bet your blood that I'm, I'm going to fight for all the wrongful convicted people out there. If I have a platform, I'm going to fight for them. You know, I, I've been on both ends as a cop, and now I'm a convict, and so I'm definitely going to do my best to help everyone out there in the world that's in my position. Well, uh, it's going to be uh, an honor to work with you. Um, so what happens next, and how can people help? I suggest people, if they want to learn more, go to freedanielholtzclaw.com. Um, my Facebook, Jenny Holtzclaw, is public, so um, I post all the facts and information and give um, daily updates of what's going on with his case. Let me just repeat that. So it's freedanielholtzclaw.com, which is freedaniel, H-O-L-T-Z, 
C-L-A-W.com or go to Jenny Holtzclaw, which is J-E-N-N-Y-H-O-L-T-Z-C-L-A-W on Facebook. Correct. Another thing I want to point on too um, is we have a petition going. We have over 35,000 signatures right now and you can find that on my Facebook or com for the link to actually sign the petition. And of course, I'll be posting about it as well on my Instagram at it's Jason Flom. Um, Erica, you look like you've got something to add. The main point for me was how I feel Daniel's case is a tragedy because our society's noblest desires to end racism and sexism and police brutality ended up convicting an innocent man. So that is a tragedy where a good thing about our society, wanting to care about victims of sexual assault, led people down this path to torture an innocent man and send him to prison. At this point in the show, this is the point that I think I always say is my favorite part of the show, where I get to uh, thank each of you again for being here. Jenny Holesclaw, sister and uh, freedom fighter, and Erica Fuchs, biologist and dedicated activist to righting these wrongs. And of course, you, Daniel. And I'd like to, uh, so again, thank you all for being here. And then, Daniel, I want to turn it over to you for, uh, this is the part of the show where I turn my microphone off and I get to just listen. And you can just, uh, you know, wrap it up in any way you want and talk about anything you want and make sure we didn't miss anything as well. So thank you. Thank you again for, for sharing and calling in from prison. And now I'll turn it over to you. All right, I'll just try to be quick. Um, first, just thank you for letting us, uh, my loved ones, and everyone close to come on board and be able to speak my side and my innocence. I appreciate it, Jason. Um, just to add, you know, real fast, and case is so complex in that, I want to really articulate it is the media. And if someone asked me, well, why do you think you're wrongfully convicted, Daniel? I'd probably say, to be honest with you, it's just the media. I think the media plays a huge factor in people's perception, like I said earlier in the show. Um, people watch today, you know, TV shows where it's Law and Order, NCIC, NCIS, you know, all those types of shows, and they believe, you know, this stuff happens in the courtroom. Well, that's TV shows, those are movies. That's not the reality of what happens in actual courtrooms. People believe that this defendant that's high profile on national television, oh man, he must be guilty. Oh, and then the defense lawyer, oh man, he's a corrupt defense lawyer. He's just trying to get paid. He's going to try to get him off on a technicality. Well, that's not the case, you know? So please just don't believe into the media. Don't believe in that mass media manipulation where they, they're feeding you these one-minute sections where they can edit and crop them wherever they want to do. And majority of them are just boosting and aiding the prosecution side. And people believe the prosecutions are the good guys. Well, not all the cases. But it's not that. They care about all they care about is the conviction rate. And so I just ask that you guys please look into the facts of cases. Don't, you know, the, the famous quote is, don't judge a book by its cover. Well, you know, you see this mass media, you know, case going on. And you continue to see even national news, CNN, you know, Fox News. Big, you have 60 seconds remaining. Big time media outlets just don't jump to the assumption that this person is guilty of looking in the facts of the case and actually, you know, do your homework. And uh, that would you know, definitely, the, you know, come out with your own opinion and don't don't believe what the media always tries to portray. So uh, I know it's about to hang up right now, but again, thank you everyone, all the loved ones, all the fighters that came along. It's a miracle that we're on that right now. It's thanks to you guys. I love you guys. Thank you so much for uh, being there. You have 30 seconds remaining. 
I'm going to continue to fight, uh, never give up, and I know I'm going to be free. So thank you, everyone out there that's listening. I love you guys. Thank you. Love you, Daniel. Bye, Daniel. Following Daniel Hoseclaw's conviction in 2015 and the denial of his appeal in 2019, he's now preparing to file his state application for post-conviction relief in Oklahoma. He and his team are also working on filing a petition for a writ of certiorari with the U.S. Supreme Court, which is due in December of 2019. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project. And I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number One and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.